Good morning. My name is Yuna. Uh, today's reading comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verse 38 through 42. Please follow along in your Bibles or simply listen as the scriptures are read. Again, that's Luke chapter 10, starting with verse 38. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of O Come, Let Us Adore Him. Parents and guardians of children in kindergarten through fifth grade, you are invited to escort your kids to the back of the room to join Kids Common. As you are able, we invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you all here this morning. My name is Matt. I am one of the pastors here at Haverhill Commons Church. Um, it's an honor and a privilege to be with you together as we worship the Lord this morning. Um, last week, we began a new series for us, a new sermon series. It's called Prepare Him Room, and each week we're talking about a different room, so to speak, of our houses and how we can make room for Jesus in that space in our lives. Last week, we talked about the living room and how chaotic and sort of full of activity the living room can be, and the challenge, the charge, the invitation last week was to uh, savor, to take the time to actually slow down and savor the moments that God gives us, to actually slow down and savor our Savior in this season. This morning, we're going to shift gears and go from the living room into the dining room. So the dining room is happening today. Before we get there, I'd like to invite you into just a moment of silence, a moment of reflection, as we open our hearts and prepare ourselves for what the Lord has for each of us this morning. So please join me in a moment before the Lord. Lord Jesus, in this space, we feel your presence. We know that you're here with us. You know that, we know that you love us. Open our hearts, Holy Spirit. Make us fertile ground for your word that it might encourage us and produce in us your good fruit. It's in Jesus' powerful name and for his sake that we pray. Amen. So every Sunday that we gather in this space, I have a lot of things going on in my mind. We have an incredible team of amazing volunteers. We have Awesome and amazing staff members. They all contribute to making this thing happen, this church happen. But at the same time, I've got this mental checklist in my head every single Sunday. Is the kids' common printer working? Do, any, do we have enough mints? The answer to that was no this morning. We have no mints this morning. Will the microphone get glitchy? And what do we do if it does? Are the slides in the right order? Do we have enough pins in the pews? Do we have enough coloring pages on the clipboards? Is the band loud enough? Is the band too loud? Is it too cold to have soul food outside today? Is my sermon too long? Is it relatable? Is it truthful? Is it challenging? Is it not too challenging? Am I being authentic? Am I not oversharing? Is the pastor across town preaching a better sermon than the one I'm preaching? Do people like this song? Are we doing too many new songs? <laughs> Did I remember to start the audio recording upstairs? Are the Advent candles straight? Don't look too closely because they are definitely not. 
Should we even have an open flame in a sanctuary in a church that we're renting space from? I'm probably not sure about that. These are all the things that are going on in my mind on a typical Sunday morning, and I care about all of these details. And I care about all these details because I care about all of you. I want things to go a certain way because I know that if things are organized and stable, then that helps everyone feel welcomed. It feels, makes people feel seen and valued. And I want people to experience God, and I want people to connect with each other, and I want our kids to be safe and curious and to know that they are loved by us and by the Lord. But sometimes I, delve, as I, sometimes I derive too much of my worth from how well the service goes. If the service is clicking, if the transitions are smooth, if I've checked all the boxes and things look great, then I'm great. If I drop too many balls, if the service is a failure, if we screw up a whole slide on the song we just sang, then I'm a failure. It's not just that the service didn't go great. I can become so preoccupied with those details and what they say about me that I actually forget to connect with the people who've come to participate. Sometimes I'm so locked into what I'm doing that I forget why I'm doing it. Have you ever been there, so locked into what you're doing that you've forgotten the why behind why you're doing it? You feel pressure to be excellent and to perform, to meet the expectations you have for yourself, to meet the expectations that others have for you. Well, if you do, then you would be interested in this guy, psychologist Thomas Curran. He studies perfectionism and the pressure that people put on themselves to be flawless. He's found, interestingly, that over the last 40, 30, 40 years, that the drive to be perfect, the desire to be perfect, has risen, especially among young people, by 40%. One of the biggest contributors, you might guess, to perfectionism is the internet. The internet preserves and presents perfection. Dude Perfect is a great example. It's a group of guys who have made a fortune producing videos of themselves doing seemingly impossible things. Six months ago, they attempted the world's highest basketball shot. From the top of the stratosphere in Las Vegas, which is 855 feet in the air, it's an unbelievable video. From 855 feet, they drop a ball, and it takes 15 seconds to go down all the way, and in a word, it's perfect. They make it. It's an amazing shot. But what you don't see in the video is that it took them 25 hours of nonstop attempts, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of shots to make that one perfect shot. That's the internet, right? Perfect shots, perfect photos, perfect families, perfect sermons, the perfect life, as if it's all normal, as if it's all attainable. And as a result, our standards and expectations are completely unrealistic. We're not just comparing ourselves to the people that we know in real life, the pastor across town. We're comparing ourselves to the very best version of the very best people from all over the world, and it's not attainable. Now, I want to disclaimer and say that perfectionism is not the same as having high standards. You can have high standards, you can work towards excellence, and you can still be healthy. When you're healthy, you acknowledge that you have limits. You give yourself grace when you make mistakes. You bounce back from setbacks. You accept that you are not God and that you're not in control of every single outcome in your life. You accept that you're imperfect. Perfectionism, on the other hand, is driven by a deep sense of your own inadequacy. Perfectionism is driven by a sense that you are inferior, a fear that you're deficient, a fear that you're not enough. And that drive produces in us a need to excel. I need to excel. I need to do better. I need to do more because my worth comes from my performance. 
So our failures, our mistakes, our imperfections, they lead to feelings of shame. They lead to feelings of worthlessness. Even in this headspace, our successes could have been better. 99%? What a loser. That could have been 100%. That's the unhealthy side of perfectionism. In that mindset, in the perfectionist mindset, our performance is our worth. Ugh, that wasn't a great service. I'm not a great pastor. I'm not a great person. One of the trickier things about perfectionism is that working harder, pushing more, doing better are highly valued traits in our world. Some of the highest achieving people that you've heard of are driven in this way, and we admire them for sacrificing everything to get to the top. Like, why not us? So we send that email at 2 a.m., knowing that our boss will see that we sent an email at 2 a.m. and will approve of how dedicated we are, which means that you might get promoted, which means that you might be worth something, which means you'll send another email at 2 a.m., which means you'll get rewarded again, which means you must be worth even more than you were before. But at what cost? At what cost? What if I don't actually enjoy sending emails at 2 a.m.? What do 2 a.m. emails do to my relationships with my family and with my friends and with the Lord? And what happens if I get too old or too sick or too depressed to write 2 a.m. emails at the same level as I did before? These are the questions that I want us to ask as we continue our Advent series with a look at our dining rooms, our dining rooms. The dining room tends to be the most formal room in our houses, at least in the houses that I've ever lived in. No running, no wrestling, no throwing anything in the dining room. At my home growing up, we had fancy plates with fancy names and teacups and wine glasses encased in a china cabinet, and we only ever got them out on very, very special occasions. And when we did get them out, there was a right way to set the table. Big fork here, little fork there, little tiny fork at the top. You had a normal knife, you also had a little weird extra knife, and everything had its place. Now, the dining room can be a wonderful place full of food and conversation and connection, but for me growing up, it was the room that I felt the least comfortable in in my whole house, a room where I felt a lot of pressure to be on my best behavior, which I think seems to be the kind of pressure that Martha was feeling in the passage that Una just read for us. Jesus arrived at their village, and Martha, it says in verse 38, opened her home to him. She opened her home to him, which is a term of discipleship or a term of hospitality. The word itself means to welcome in or to receive somebody. She received him. What an amazing day. Martha's sister, Mary, verse 39, sat at the Lord's feet, and she listened to what he said. It seems like Mary's way of receiving Jesus, of welcoming him in, was to focus all of her attention on him and to sit at his feet, to pay attention to her guest. Verse 40, but Martha was distracted by all of the preparations that had to be made. Martha was distracted. It seems like she had a vision in her head of what it, the day needed to be like and look like, and there were a lot of things that she needed to do to make that happen. The word translated distraction here gives us a sense of her state of mind. The word distracted here means drawn away, drawn away to another place. So Martha's not present fully. She's actually somewhere else, drawn away mentally. Now, Martha might say, and she probably even thinks that her focus is on her guests, on Jesus and the disciples, but her words and her actions say something else. We see this in her complaint. She says, Lord, don't you care 
that my sister's left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. I'm doing all the work. Tell her to help me. Which I think begs the question, is this really about Jesus and his followers? Or is this about Martha? Who's the one making this into a comparison? You know, this week I reread the book Siblings Without Rivalries, and it reminded me of something that I often overlook in verses like this. Mary and Martha aren't strangers, right? They're siblings. They're sisters. They've lived their entire lives together, which means that all of the complexities and nuances of their sibling relationship are at play in this moment, in this interaction. Siblings compare themselves to each other. They do. And whether or not parents try to make it a competition or a comparison, parents inevitably end up making it a comparison or a competition themselves. You can almost hear the words these two girls might have heard growing up. Mary, why can't you be more responsible like your sister? She's already washed her face, she's combed her hair, she's gotten dressed for the day. Why can't you be a little bit more like her? Or, Martha, you're so uptight. Look at Mary, she's just chilling, she's going with the flow. Why can't you relax a little bit more like she does? Without even trying to, we're making it into a comparison. Totally speculating, of course, but I can't help but imagine that this wasn't the first instance of tension between Mary and Martha in the course of their lifetimes. It's not hard to imagine that some of Martha's insecurity or lack of self-worth were influenced by how she viewed herself in comparison to her sister, in comparison to Mary. Another thing that often happens between siblings is that they learn to play specific roles in the families that they grow up in. Siblings are often cast into roles, even from a very early age. Sometimes it's just based on a birth order. Hey, let me introduce you to my kids. This one, he's the oldest, and there are the twins, and then there's the baby. I didn't even say their names. I just said their order as if that was their identity. Doesn't quite seem right. Sometimes this role is based on characteristics or aptitude that we see in the children. Oh, my son, he's the quiet one. Oh, but he's the loud one. He's the one that always gets hurt, that's okay. Oh, that one, he's my little tattletale. Oh, she's my little helper. He's our shy guy. She's the brave one. He's my musician. She's my princess. All of these roles, these labels that we attach to our kids matter, and our kids hear what we say about them. And these roles can burrow so deep in children that they will, without prompting, put themselves and others into the roles they've been assigned and feel pressure to perform up to those roles. So the athlete might feel compelled to play sports because, well, she's good at them. Maybe she'd rather play the clarinet than play soccer, but that option doesn't feel available because she's the athlete. And what about the sibling that's not the athlete? Maybe they actually like soccer, but they feel like they can't play because everyone knows they're not as good at soccer as the athlete is. I think there's another level at play here besides just families assigning roles. Because roles aren't only assigned by families, they're also assigned to us by society. Society will look at you and your appearance and your family and your gender and a dozen other things, and then society will tell you, directly or indirectly, the role that you're supposed to play in this world. Thomas Curran calls this socially prescribed perfectionism. Socially prescribed perfectionism. The pressure that comes at us, not from inside of us, but from outside of us, from the world around us. Everything we do, everything we post, every photo, every statement will be analyzed and scrutinized under a microscope forever. No pressure, right? No, like so much pressure, right? 
Pressure, this, this type of socially prescribed perfectionism is the kind that's stretching young people out more than any other factor when they did these surveys. Like socially prescribed perfectionism is the one thing that's making people feel the most pressure to be perfect and to look perfect and to act perfect because they feel it from the outside. So here we have Martha. She's an elder daughter. She's a woman. She's living in the first century Rome. She's living in first century Roman-occupied Israel, and she has a prescribed role for herself. It was domestic servant. When someone came to her house, the role she had learned was the role of host. Her job is to make sure everything is perfect so that the host or the guests can feel honored. I don't know, maybe Martha didn't even like being a host. Maybe it's not the role she'd have chosen for herself. Maybe she's not even good at it, but it was her role. So when Jesus shows up, Martha gets to work. She's flying around. She's distracted by a thousand details, yet doing what she's supposed to do. Unlike her lazy sister, who's just sitting there doing nothing, not helping at all. So, Lord Jesus, right, you got my back. I know you care about this situation. Just go ahead. Go ahead and tell Mary to help me. Go ahead, right? So when Jesus speaks, he says, Martha. Martha. Pretty wonderful detail, right? Two Marthas, not just one. Jesus says her name twice. Maybe that's because she's just so distracted. Martha. But she's just still working, right? Still like hustling, like getting every place ready over here, over there, doing all the things. Maybe she'll get to Jesus after she just finishes one more last thing. Martha. I think there's tenderness in Jesus's Martha, Martha. It's not a rebuke. It's not, what's wrong with you? It's an expression of care. He doesn't want her to feel the way that she feels. So he needs her attention. Martha. Martha, you're worried and upset about many things, he says. And this is really important, worried and upset. Some of you really need to hear this, especially you loyal, dependable, steadfast folks who express your love with acts of service. Those are wonderful and beautiful qualities. Setting tables, setting out chairs, decorating a room can all be beautiful acts of love. Jesus is not criticizing Martha's work. Jesus is not criticizing Martha's work. He's not saying what you're doing is wrong. He's not negating the importance of cleaning the space or preparing a meal. None of those things are inherently wrong activities. The problem here isn't that Martha is serving. It's that she's worried and upset. Consumed by the kind of anxiety that Jesus speaks out against in Matthew 6. Because we worry about so much. right? What are we going to eat? What are we going to wear? Whether we'll have enough? But Jesus says that we are so valuable to God so loved and cared for by God, more than we can even imagine. So therefore, Jesus says in Matthew 6, do not worry or be anxious about your life. And he sees Martha, Martha, you are worried, you are anxious, you are overwhelmed, you are upset about many, many things. You're worried about failing, perhaps. If you're worried about that, if you're worried about failing, if you're worried that I'll be disappointed, if you're worried about what everyone else is going to think about you, if you're worried that your home isn't good enough, if you're worried that your food's not good enough, if you're worried that your manners aren't good enough or that you're not good enough, then hear me say that you don't have to worry about those things. Martha, Martha, I am not worried about those things. I am here at your home to stay with you, to enjoy my time with you, 
No matter what messages you've heard, no matter what role you think you have to play, the most important thing to me is you, and I do not want you to be worried or anxious or upset. In addition to being worried and anxious and upset about yourself, you're worried and anxious and upset about Mary. So this is interesting and I think worth noting. Our English translations often make Jesus' words here into a comparison. Even in the NIV, which I'm using this morning, says, Mary has chosen what is better. It's a comparative term. What is better than what you're doing, Martha? But that's actually not what the Greek actually says. The Greek actually only says, Mary has chosen the good portion So that's a difference, right? A pretty big difference between Mary has chosen what's better and Mary has chosen the good portion. He's not comparing them. He's not awarding them points to fuel their sibling rivalry. He's merely saying that Mary has chosen the good portion, which is an echo of Psalm 16, 5. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup, and you make my lot secure. Mary isn't worried about anything else. She takes a hold of the good portion of the Lord Jesus, and that good portion, Jesus says, will not be taken from her. And that part of the scene, Mary holding on to Jesus, is actually a really shocking scene. Because sitting at the feet of a rabbi was the move of a disciple. Learning was not something women were supposed to do. It wasn't one of the roles available to them. Society did not permit women disciples. And maybe this is part of what makes Martha so upset. Mary's not playing the role she's supposed to play. She's not helping, serving, or preparing anything. When there are so many things that need to be done, women don't just get to sit there. Mary, what will the neighbors think? Maybe Mary is not only embarrassing herself, but she's making Martha look bad too. Yet unexpectedly, shockingly, Jesus welcomed Mary. He accepted her presence as a disciple at his feet and promised that no one would take this from her. Even though Mary and Martha are ostensibly the hosts here, Jesus is the one extending care to both of them. Because God's approval is not based on our activity. God's affection is not earned by our performance. God's love is not a reward for the things we've done. God loves us freely, without condition and without reservation. God loves us freely, without condition and without reservation. Amid all the pressures, there are a few things, or indeed, maybe there's only one thing, that is actually needed. The Lord Jesus is our good portion. Whatever you have is welcomed by Jesus. And he's not comparing you to anyone else. He's not asking you to be anyone else. In the end, what I think Jesus is offering both Mary and Martha and you and I is the freedom to be ourselves. Freedom from the pressure that we're putting on ourselves. Freedom from the pressure that we imagine comes from others. Freedom from the pressure that we imagine comes from God to be something different. As we march towards the many things of Christmas, distractions are everywhere. More tasks than we can possibly complete, let alone complete them perfectly. We'll feel worried, we'll feel upset, we'll compare ourselves to others, we'll wonder if their lives are better than our lives, we'll judge them for what they're doing, we'll judge them for what they're not doing. And when we live apart from the reality of God's faithful love for us, we will be worried and we will be anxious and we will be upset about ourselves and our performance and we will miss the grace that's already ours. In Jesus, we'll be so worried about getting things just right that we'll forget the whole point of being a good host is to extend hospitality to the guests who've arrived to gather with us. 
And I say all this humbly, knowing that I am a person who strives for excellence, maybe even perfection. Whether it's writing and rewriting and rewriting a sermon or searching for the best possible deals on Black Friday, I try to do my best in every circumstance. So I need people to remind me that fewer things are needed, that oftentimes fewer things are needed. I began seminary when I was 31 years old. Megan and I were just two years into our marriage, and my best friend Blazer had already gone through seminary, and he'd already served, he was already serving as a pastor at a church. And entering into seminary, he gave me two pieces of advice. One I'll say for another sermon, but the other I'll share with you this morning. He said to me, quite forcefully, I might add, Matt, in some of your classes in seminary, get B's. Just in some of your classes, get some B's, dude. And he wasn't saying do a bad job. And he wasn't saying like purposefully sabotage my academic growth. He was reminding me that I could not do everything. Now, I could get all A's. I'd work past midnight, I'd neglect my physical health. Going from a B to an A on every quiz and every paper and every test would demand two or three or four more hours each day of my life given to my studies. Two or three or four fewer hours that I'd have to spend with Megan two or three or four fewer hours that I'd have to spend with our newborn son, Griffin. And I decided that that cost was too high for me. And it was not a one-time decision, I regret to say, but an ongoing battle throughout my time in seminary because so much of my identity was, and to some extent still is, wrapped up in my achievements as a student, winning the approval of my teachers, my role, the role that I had accepted and maybe was prescribed to me was good student, my worth, my GPA. Yet, I can honestly say that I'd make that same choice a hundred times over again, because those trips to the playground, those walks through the park with Griffin, those games of peekaboo meant more to me than an A in Greek too. Because if I'd sold out to my performance, I would have missed my people. If I'd sold out to my performance, then I would have missed my people. And I think that's what Jesus was trying to teach Martha. Our tasks, what we do, can become more important than the people that we're doing them for. Our dining rooms are not museums. Our dining rooms are not art galleries. They are rooms set aside so that we can host people, imperfect people, who are going to spill their drinks and they're going to break that plate, and they're going to make awkward comments, and we get to host them anyway. So this Christmas season, you could get A's. Across the board, you could get A's. You could spend all your time and energy to excel on tasks in front of you, but at what cost? Martha was so distracted by the task that she didn't see the Savior right in front of her. She was so upset about getting things right that all she had for her sister was judgment and anger. How different would this story have been if Martha had stopped to ask Jesus what he wanted from her in that moment? How do you think Jesus would have answered that question if she'd asked it? What do you want from me, Jesus, in this moment? You know, there's a big difference between hospitality and being the perfect host. It's a big difference between hospitality and being the perfect host, because being the perfect host is actually kind of about me. I want to be the perfect host, but hospitality is about serving the other person and serving them on their terms. This season, whether you're someone who gets A's or someone who's fine with C's, focus less on the tasks 
perhaps, and more on the people in front of you. Make room in your dining room for the grace of Jesus by setting down your need to get the tasks just right and instead prioritize the person that you get to host. Ask them what makes them feel seen and heard and valued. And when you find yourself distracted or anxious or upset about how all the things are going, when you find yourself locked into a rigid way of thinking, it has to go this way, hear Jesus say your name. Once, twice, as many times as he needs to say it so that you stop and ask yourself, why am I feeling so distracted here? Why am I so upset? Why am I so anxious? Where is all of this coming from? And perhaps, what's the worst thing that might happen if I don't do these things perfectly? What's the worst thing that might happen if I don't do this task perfectly, and is that so bad? So that's my encouragement for us this morning. Prepare space in our dining rooms, our perfect dining rooms, for Jesus and for our own imperfection. Whatever you have is welcomed. He's not comparing you to anyone else. You are good enough for him, and he will not be taken from you by anyone or anything or any power or any principality. Amen? Amen.